Samantha Garriock, uh, we all know she was uh, one of our great Matildas. Uh, she earned 130 caps playing for the Australian women's national team. Uh, played in three Olympic tournaments and three FIFA Women's World Cups. And I'm sure Heather will correct me if I get any of this wrong. Um, also is an A-licensed coach. Um, has uh, coached for four years with Sydney University uh, in the NPLW uh, in Sydney, during which time she uh, and her team made four finals, uh, two grand finals and won three premierships. She's also been a W League coach with Canberra United. So, Heather, uh, the other thing I guess I can't not mention here is that she is the Vice President of Football Coaches Australia um, and in the FFA's First Eleven Advisory Panel, uh, and she does a tremendous amount of work behind the scenes that nobody ever gets to see for our beautiful games. So, Heather, welcome. Thanks, Leah. It's a pleasure to be here, and I'm looking forward to presenting tonight and just being able to collaborate with everybody. It's going to be cool. Obviously, I think uh, we're in reset mode at the moment, given the, the COVID situation and uh, given the time that I've had the last couple of months to, to reflect about the beautiful game of football. Uh, there's no better uh, presentation tonight than uh, to give insight on bridging the gap. It's time to reset. So um, I'm really delighted for that. We're going to play a video to give you a little bit of insight about me as a coach, player and everything like that. People call it sacrifices, I call it a choice. And just like any ambitious female that wants to strive for excellence, you do need to make sacrifices and you do need to choose. My weekly schedule is obviously quite dramatic. I've got a six-year-old, a four-year-old, and I've also got a seven-month-old Aston. It's just really digging deep. Sometimes I feel like Superwoman. I started playing football when I was six years old and I've been coaching for over 15 years from a grassroots point of view. Whether I was playing or whether I was coaching, I loved it and I still love it and I still have that feeling and I still have that passion for it. Transitioning from a player to a coach, it's chasing that feeling, feeling that you get when you're holding your best mate's hand, singing the national anthem for the Matildas. I think it's the smiles of, of young players. If I can make an impact on their lives, both on and off the field, then I've done my job. The most important thing for me is to be part of a team that is a family. I guess you've probably heard the L word a few times and, and that's the love of football. And that's one thing um, ever since I was a little girl, uh, I just love football. So being a mum, a wife, a coach, a former professional footballer, I've seen a little bit throughout my time. My thoughts and opinions are from my experience today and my research. I'm posing problems about our game, but in turn, I'm trying to give solutions as well. This info is open for discussion, obviously. Um, please ask questions so there, there's interaction and learning for us all. I thought it'd be really fitting to show the only silverware in women's football that we've ever won, and that's the Asian Cup in 2010. While winning trophies is the pinnacle of sport, developing the person is just as important as well. Enjoy this moment. It's just such a, oh, it's, it's so wonderful to sit here and see them in front of a champion sign. They, you know, they got knocked out a couple, a couple of years ago. It cost them a World Cup place a couple of years before that. So now to have guaranteed that place in the Women's World Cup in Germany next year. You got the gist of the feeling of winning, the feeling of lifting a trophy at a major tournament. And that happened some years ago. Um, so in terms of um, the problem, 
that I see is we can all see that the Matildas are the darlings of football at the moment. They're on so many media outlets, they're household names. We've qualified for every single World Cup since we entered into Asia, but we've got a problem. The problem's this. I think the Matildas are a Band-Aid. And the reason why is because throughout the last 10 years, we haven't qualified at a youth tournament and we haven't qualified by a long margin um, of recent times. The last time we qualified was through Oceana and we went to the World Cup in two, 2006. But since then, we haven't qualified at Junior Matildas and we haven't qualified at Young Matildas either. Now, the dates that are on the screen are the dates that we made the qualifications. Uh, the World Cups were that, that actual year after. So um, this is a major problem and this creates the problem that we've got the golden generation at the moment and I'll use that buzzword, but unfortunately, we're not creating depth or anything underneath. I'm going to touch on a few different things. I can go into club structures. I can go into fan base. I can go into so many different things. Um, but the four different areas that I really wanted to touch on today, um, especially about, uh, I guess, women's football and us not being able to achieve our potential. And it, is, it, is it because we don't have the players? Absolutely not. Do we have a problem from a scouting and ID point of view? We do. From a pathways point of view, do we have the pathways in place for our young boys and girls to achieve their dreams? No, I don't think we do. I don't think our structure's right. From grassroots right up until our, until our national teams. Do we have the coaches? Yes, the coaches are there. Are we educating our coaches on how to be the best coaches? Are we investing in our coaches? Are we giving them the tools that they need that they can give back to our young boys and girls to be able to play and give the best they can. No. Our competition structures are all over the shop. Depends on what state you're at. We're not getting enough game time, whether it's boys or girls. Um, I'll speak specifically about girls and, and women today. Um, there's no, the, com the competitiveness within the games isn't there. Our length of season isn't there. And I'll touch on um, towards the end of the presentation about our W League structures. So we've got a major problem. How do we bridge the gap? That's, that's the big question. And I'm sure everyone's got, like, got an opinion about how we do bridge the, bridge the gap. And like I ju I've just alluded to, um, we've got the players, we've got the coaches, we've got the competitions and structures right from grassroots, and we've got the pathways as well. But what I'm gonna do, I'm gonna start with the players because obviously they're, they're a massive stakeholder in the game. I'm just, gonna, I'm just gonna show this footage. I know I just showed the Asian Cup and, and winning the cup. But the reason why I wanna show this footage is because there's a young girl that took the winning penalty, a young 18 year old that I got to see go through the ranks and go through from grassroots right up until when she was a young 12 and 13 year old girl who started off the Institute um, program in New South Wales, who blossomed in and is still one of our best players in Australia. So I just want to show you this moment and what a fabulous moment it was for not only her as a person, but also the team. Spot there and we can see Kai Simon walking up for the next penalty. Well, Kai Simon has the Asian Cup in her hand. The 18-year-old who scored two winners for Australia in real time. Can she win the Asian Cup? 
Sensational performance. What a grit, what a determination, what a passion. And in the penalty shootouts, one of cool hands. Oh, it is a sea of joy from the Matildas. Five perfect penalties. Brilliantly taken. And they exact revenge on the defeat four years ago. What wonderful excitement for the Australian team. A first in Australian football history. An Asian Cup trophy. And it goes to the Matildas. Sometimes the indivisible team. Today, they're out there. Big, bold and beautiful. And what a strike it was from Kaya Simon. Australia wins gloriously. And Barbieri with the dance of absolute joy. What a momentous occasion and, and one that we haven't had uh, for a very long time. But I know we can have the, the moment again. Um, you heard the commentator say that we're invisible. And in actual fact, the thing is, we were invisible until probably that moment. I'd say 2007 was a turning point in women's football. But that moment as well. Um, in terms of the players, I'm, I'm going to introduce one of the panellists uh, in and um, someone that I highly respect and knows the women's game inside out and backwards. And I'd like to introduce Tom Samani. Um, I just think that he would be a fantastic person um, to talk about players in particular, um, more about player ID and scouting because um, we have a massive problem in, in our country uh, about player ID and scouting. And um, I'd just like to introduce Tommy uh, to the floor so I could ask some questions. Easy questions only, please. Thank you. <laughs> no problem. I just wanted to ask you about the colour of your hair when we won the Asian Cup. Was that, uh, was that black or was that uh, auburn? It was, it was going, it, was, it started out at black and then gradually went to auburn and then gradually went redder or greener, ginger, ginger. <laughs> that the, that the color? Yeah, yeah, ginger or Auburn. Yeah. Um, Tommy, I wanted to speak to you about um, scouting and, and talent ID, but reflecting upon um, what, what you've just seen of the Asia Cup, A, did you think that we could win the Asia Cup given that the players we had? And how did you go about scouting um, the players that, that we scouted given the, the, the talent that we had? Um. I think that Asian Cup was always going to be very difficult to win because between the, the previous World Cup and Asian Cup, we had quite a few retirements of some real key players. Uh, Joey Peters, that I see on the call here, being one of them. And um, so we had a fairly young, inexperienced team in general. And also we went into the final without um, Devana and, and Sarah Walsh, who were both uh, injured for that for that final. So we went in without two of our key strikers. So when you look at the um, inexperience of the squad in losing two key players, uh, I think that the, the team did a magnificent job to actually win the tournament. We Absolutely. got a wee bit of luck in the semi-finals as well. We, we did get a bit of luck, but luck wins your games. I think you always told us that. Um, Tommy, talk to me about um, scouting and talent ID because obviously your tenure was, was over in 2012. And this group of players uh, is the group of players pretty much that you brought up, the Semi Kerrs, the Caitlin Fords, um, the Emily Van Egmonts, Alana Kennedys. Um, talk me through the scouting. How did you scout them? 
and also about our scouting in regional areas as well. Well, it wasn't so much about me scouting them. It was more about the system we had in place. And I think that the great thing we had during my time, which just happened to finish as I left, coincidentally, was that we had uh, the state institutes and we had, so we had a system, we had a really good network within that system. So each, simplistically, each state had a full-time coach. And those coaches were um, employed by the state institutes of sport. So we had programs within the states that were coach-run, coach-managed, and, and based, around, based around the athlete. And then within that, as me as technical director and national coach, all those coaches and myself were all connected all the time. So those coaches basically had a handle on everything that happened within the state. I think also because of we had that structure, um, everybody knew somebody. So if there was a player in um, Wagga or uh, Double or whatever, somebody con contacted us about those players. And because we had a system in place, we were able to go and actually look at them, watch them, scout them, and, and give them an opportunity. And, and an example of that was uh, the Sykes twins who came from double. And, and they came on our radar. They were not even close to being on our radar. They came into a country New South Wales camp and Norm Boardman contacted me. And they said, got these two girls, they're a bit raw, but they're the best two athletes that we've ever had coming out of the country. So from there, because we had that network and we had that system, we were able to bring them in give them opportunities, look at them. And, and ultimately, I think both of them um, represented Australia at some stage. So I think that was the key, was the system and the network. Yeah, I'll never forget you bringing the two Sykes twins in and um, Ash and, and Nick uh, beating Sarah Walsh in the sprints. Uh, she, she was not happy, given that she was, she was the fastest at the time and they're only young 15-year-olds. Young you certainly stirred the, the pot. Um, lastly, Tommy, uh, in terms of our DNA, um, we just saw, we, you know, we're known as the Never Say Die Matildas. Uh, the DNA that we held, we held a, a very high work ethic. If you would ask anyone 10 years ago to describe an Australian footballer, um, they'd describe them as very athletic, strong, um, really hard to get around, good defensively, disciplined. Um, how would you describe the DNA back in the day and how would you describe it now, Tommy? Well, that was, I think that was the foundation of what we had. Uh, one of the key factors that we had to put in place when we went into Asia was we had to maintain that, but we then had to improve our football. And I think we were very fortunate at that time around the 2005, 6, 7 and 8 that we had a, a core coming through of senior players, like yourself, the Joey Peters, Cheryl Salisbury, Di Alligitches, Sarah Walsh's, Devanas, a whole range, Colette McCallum's, et cetera, et cetera who were also very good players. So we went into that era being a team that was already um, excelled in its work rate and its competitiveness. And what we lacked was the refinement to then take that and get results. So I think the key factor was to keep that foundation of hard work, team ethic, uh, players supporting each other, and then add the football part on. And, uh, and during that period of time, I think we were very fortunate that we had a group of players that were able to combine both. And I think that's what made the foundation to us being successful. And I think that then helped that next generation, you know, the Sams and the Alanis, Steph Catleys, then come through because they were coming into a, 
a system that where there wasn't just good players, but there was also a really good work ethic. Thanks for your time, Tommy. Um, I, I might tap back into you later on in the in the conversation or the presentation. Um, thanks for that, Tom. My pleasure. Thank you. Okay. Um, if I go on to to what we need to do do to develop our own DNA, Tommy's just touched on it, and and that's the foundations. Um, but I really think uh, being able to bridge a gap. We really need to, to tap into the grass, grassroots. It's from the bottom up. And whilst I've touched a lot on the Matildas, uh, the last 10 minutes or so and the pinnacle of our sport, the job really needs to be done at, at, at a grassroots level and a, and a community level, I, I really feel. What we need to do is we need to get young players to fall in love with the game and fall in love with the game by not putting restraints and constraints on these kids. It's developing their skill and technique learning the foundations of football, but also having fun as well. And I think that's the most important thing. If I reflect upon me as a player, um, the fondest memories I have are my time playing at club football and um, enjoying um, being able to do the simple things and playing games and scoring goals in the big net and things like that. So for me, that, that, that was really important. Also, uh, what was important is, is the school system, is being able to... to have, it, have schools in place where the Westfields are there and, 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 and um, you're able to be part of, of an elite program. I think the investment, um, whilst we always talk about uh, grassroots football, um, we do need to invest in quality training and develop. But in turn, what we need to do is we need to stop charging young kids' parents. In particular, I'm a parent of, of two young kids that, that they're playing club football this year here in Canberra it's a lot of money for the kids to play. So from a playing perspective, um, it, it, it's, it's hard to get those, those better kids and the kids that are from remote, remote areas involved in football, especially when it's gonna cost six or 700 bucks for two kids, just can't afford it. In terms of the, the next stage, it's, it's developing our own tactics to win and, and build on a, our strengths. Um, and by building on our strengths, um, it's what we spoke about. It's, it's more about our DNA and, and it's going to that next level. I really think that we've got, um, in terms of, uh, of the players that we want to produce, is, is they're pushed too early and they're, tr they're trying to be fast-tracked. And I alluded to Kaya Simon before. This kid's part of the national team when she's 16 years old. How can she still have a childhood? How can she still be able to play um, and enjoy the game? And then that way, in turn, she, she falls in love with the game and she continues to be part of the game. Kai's, Kai's one of few that'll make it. 1% of players will make it in time, okay? The other 99% that don't make it, we want to give them the opportunity to be able to give back to the game and give back by maybe being a volunteer, possibly being a referee, being a coach, being a mum that wants to coach. The top pillar just there is, is hunger to win and learn to win and, and, and make it a habit. Now, I think for our national team, we can win. We need to make it a habit but not just hunger to win cups like the top is, but it's winning in life. It's starting from the bottom and enjoying our football community level and being a person that wins in life as well because you've built up so many skills. You've helped out in the canteen. You've been the coach. You've been the referee at MPL level. It's all those things that we need to develop and all those things that we had back in the day that we need to continue to do. It's more about collaboration. Heather, I've got a question from Michael Jarvis, uh, one of 
uh, guests on this uh, forum. He's asked, in youth football, 12 to 17, what is your opinion regarding females playing versus males and the difference in age, uh, you know, 12 boys versus 14 girls? Okay. Uh, it's a good question, which I'm going to touch on a little bit later on the, in, in the presentation. Um, but from a physical point of view, uh, I believe that, or that it's proven that uh, from a physical point of view, uh, girls can play with boys up until till 14s. Um, from, a, from a technical point of view, there shouldn't be any differences um, whatsoever uh, between boys and girls. And it's more about the physicality when they get to you know, they go through puberty, obviously, and, and they get to the, the physical stages, it, it makes it more difficult. But my encourage, I, I encourage from an elite level that um, boys and girls to play together and allow, allow the girls the choice to continue to play with the boys and actually normalise it. Because when I, was, when I was coming through the pathway, is it was normal for, for a girl or two girls to be part of a team. But now um, some clubs force the girls into girls-only programs. And I, I just don't like that. I think um, it's important to give them a choice and most importantly, um, normalising, um, you know, both players, female, males, and also normalising uh, both female, male coaches as well. And just one more question uh, from Ron Smith. Ron, I'll just ask you to take your microphone off mute, please, and you can ask your question. Okay, Hev. Um, it's interesting when you look back and my question is, What's changed? What's really changed from what you experienced and many other young women like yourself compared to what's happening now? Yeah, I, I, I'm going to go through pathways a little bit later on in the presentation. And I think that the big thing that, that's changed is we're, we're overcomplicating the game. We're pushing players into elite programs at young ages when really they're not ready to. And then what happens is they, they get spat out the other end because they hate going to training three times a week and they're, they're deciding that they can't go and hang out with their friends or they can't go to music lessons or they can't fit in their academics. Um, it wasn't until that I got selected into uh, Westfield Sports High School is that I decided that it, it was important. Football's important to me. This is what I love and this is what I want to do. But just remember for that three years at Westfield, I played basketball. I represented um, nationals at, at state cross country um, as, as, as well as athletics. I played cricket. So I was continually playing different sports and enjoying it. And it wasn't just football all the time. Yes, I did get selected in the Institute program um, at 14 years old where we had to drive um, to Park Lee. But I just think there's such a disconnect and the programs, the moment I, I made the Institute program at 14, my parents, yes, they had to drive me. It didn't cost me a cent. So from 14 up to, up to when I debuted for the national team, my parents didn't pay one bit. Maybe for state titles, they, they paid it, a thousand bucks to go interstate or whatever, which we used to raise the money because we couldn't afford it. But that's it. But now the kids are getting charged through the roof. There's academies everywhere. Everyone thinks they're going to make you the next big thing. Um, but they're forgetting about the person and, and the player. And that's the most important thing, I think. Okay, um, talking about players, and, and uh, I just touched on uh, Westfield Sports High, so I, I'm going to play this video through and just listen to my comments um, after the interview. This is uh, in 2007. Um, it was after we'd, we'd bowed out of the, the 2007 World Cup um, uh, against Brazil. Uh, Brazil scored in the last 10 minutes, so 
internals, pretty, pretty much a similar game to the men's game in 2006 with Italy. We, we saw it as the same thing with Brazil, we're two all. We were thinking that we we're going to be able to go into extra time. And unfortunately, uh, Cristiani, who I later roomed with, scored a bomb right foot uh, strike in the top corner. Can you play that, sir? They claim to. This was a great result. But talk us through this goal in particular. Some header. We don't see that in the A-League, and I don't say that term. Well, I could never have scored a header like that. <laughs> That's another point. It was, um, it was practice at uh, our familiarisation session the, the day before. So just, yeah, so just on that point, um, I just said it was practice at the familiarisation session the day, be day before. So I know Tommy's sitting there chuckling because um, a head's like a biscuit tin and to score a, a magic header like that, which um, ended up winning um, or getting nominated top 10 goal of the, the 2007 World Cup, is it was Westfield Sports High. And we talk about a home and Smudge has just asked, what's changed? Well, no matter what, I made the national team for the Matildas at 16. And I always went back there. And when I went back there to coach, I always saw Aaron Moy go back there. And I always saw Matty Ryan go back there. And I always saw the boys go back there and the girls. Alana Kennedy does it now and things like that. So it was a couple of weeks before we went to the World Cup. Trevor Morgan, as he does, and Casey De Bruyne said, oh, come and try this header. We're going to be working on the motorbike header. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I've got a head like a biscuit tin. So basically, for the whole session, it was just one session. The whole session, we did this motorbike header where you get up, you push your foot down and you do a glancing header. And then I was showing the girls who were taking the piss out of me um, the day before the game. And I said, girls, I said, have a look at the motorbike header. And we weren't allowed to play on the field. We were only allowed our, our, our joggers on. And there's photos of me doing the motorbike header. So what's happened just there, Diala Gooch has got the ball. I was actually going to take the free kick. And she goes, no, 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 H, you, you push up, you push up. I'll put it in, right footer, I'm playing on the left-hand side. And as she's put it in, I didn't even think twice about it. So people talk about isolated learning. And I always reflect back on that for me as a player, that it was in my computer, which is my brain. And I just did that by second nature. And there's no way I'd be able to do it again, probably, unless I practiced at a session before. So the moral to the story is I think there is a place for isolated practice as well as uh, free play as well. Okay. Um, this is really interesting, um, and I'm, I'm really, uh, really keen to get the thoughts of the Victorians after I go through these stats. Um, so if any, any Victorians are on here today, I'd love for you to ask a question. But if we look around, um, these are all the, all the players that have ever played for the Matildas in the last 30-odd years. And if we go around, obviously, South Australia, they debuted players um, you know, a good 15 or so years ago, a great crop there. ACT, the same thing. Um, the last player to debut was Ross Backen, but the, the, the player before that was Caitlin Munoz, which wasn't until 2006. New South Wales, obviously the front runner, of course, uh, at 110, Northern Territory at five. Queensland, again, had this um, great run there when, when the QAS and the Institute programs were, were up and running and, and the players like Kim Carroll, KK, Tamika Butt come through there. WA has done really, really well. Um, given the program, I'd put that down to Alistair Edwards, um, who ran that program um, for many years and, and was that uh, the head coach of the under-20s. Tassie's uh, produced two. Um, I'm sure they'd love to produce more. Um, but you look at Victoria and the amount, of pop the amount of people that live in Victoria, the programs that they've got compared to New South Wales, how can you have only produced 16 players? 16 Matildas. And I know that I'm going to ruffle feathers here, 
And I know it's a number, well, numbers don't lie, but for New South Wales to produce 110 and Victoria, the last player that debuted for Victoria was Steph Catley. And that was back when, when Tommy was a coach, which is around 2011, 2012. So we've got a problem. And the problem's the inconsistencies around the league, uh, sorry, around the States. And how can we formalise a system where everybody's on the same page? Have we got any questions from any Victorian? I do have uh, one question. Uh, it's coming from our Facebook from Valerie Rojas. Um, in terms of how do we, like, quality coaches, how do we keep quality coaches in community football um, in, rather than jumping to NPL? Um, I think that's a great question. If I can hold that question, Aish, and I'll, I'll answer it later on in the presentation, given that I'm going to speak about, uh, it's going to be a real, really big part of my presentation is, is about female coaches. Um, no offence to the males. <laughs> um, but yeah, so in terms of Victoria, I know they're trying to do something about it. I know they've just started up, a, a, it's called a Future Matildas program. And I know that um, the establishment of the Future Matildas program in New South Wales the last couple of years um, has been established. Um, I'll, I'll touch on it a little bit later. In my opinion, I think it's a band-aid effect. And also the Victorian one, um, I believe that with it's called the, the Emerging Matildas Program in Victoria. And it's the same as the point that I, I spoke about is how can we have elite programs and we're still charging these kids to be part uh, of the elite programs? Oh, Boris, how are you going? All right, I will explain. Actually, Emerging Matilda's program actually are free. I mean, sort of, there is no cost to uh, any players. And I agree with you, it's a disturbing fact that uh, 17 players only. Yeah. But uh, with that in mind, we actually went through the review of the whole programs, and it's happened a few years ago, and we absolutely review and revamp all our programs. NTC program is, went through the uh, complete review, it changed completely. Different age groups, different setups. Fantastic. And I mean, sort of, if you will do the feedback of federation, you will see this completely different. We, I mean, sort of, different numbers in uh, young Matildas yeah. and junior Matildas. Yeah, there's, there's certainly been some talented players coming through from Victoria, especially in, in that junior age group or the junior Matildas age group. Um, Boris, just quickly, um, from an NTC point of view, do the NTC girls? Pay to, to be part of that program, the under-17 program? Yes, uh, unfortunately, yes. Uh, the cost of uh, program at this point of time, it is, uh, I will tell you the truth, it's uh, $1,500, including camp. It okay. is, they have to go to the camp. If you're taking the camp out of it, it costs approximately $1,000. Thanks, Boris. Appreciate that. So... Yeah. So it's, it's great that there's reviews happening and um, onto my pathways uh, point as well is uh, that the reviews are happening externally um, from state federations and, and um, what I'd love to see is a review happening in which it's going to happen um, through Football Australia and for Football Australia to lead the way. Am I thinking pie in the sky stuff that everyone's going to band together and collaborate and be able to work together and be able to implement programs that are consistent across the board. Well, it's going to be challenging, but for the greater good of most importantly, the player, but also for our development, it's, it's a must. Um, in terms of the, in terms of the pathways, uh, I don't know about everybody else, but I wanted to have a look at the, 
the Australian football player pathway. Now, this is the girls' pathway. And I can tell you, and I was going to put the boys' pathway up as well, but the boys' pathway is slightly different. It's um, slightly different um, with obviously the teams and it doesn't have a future materials program, but it's different because it's got the A-League Academy. So there's a clear and concise pathway uh, for the boys to go from, let's say, a Sydney FC and under, under 10s, under 12s program right up until your first grade. So it, it, it almost emulates um, what you can see. Uh, you can see the first grade in mind. Um, this pathway... Uh, gives me anxiety. It gives me anxiety because it's all over the shop. You've got SAP in the foundation. You've got playing environment, SAP between under nines to 12s. You've got the mini roos in the playing environment. It's all over the shop. In fact, if I was a young girl, like I once was when I first got my folder at Westfield Sports High School, and I remember opening it up and I remember seeing the late David Lee and, and Mr. Cross, Kelly Cross, presenting and them saying, this is the pathway that you need, Heather, to be a Matilda or to be a Socceroo. And it was clear. It was as simple as anything. It was a pyramid. Now, do I think we need that pyramid? Yeah, I do for consistency. Do I think we need to bridge a gap? Yeah, I do with different things. But how about we have two pathways? How about we have a pathway that's a community pathway because not everybody wants to represent Australia. Not everybody's going to represent Australia. Not everybody's going to play W League. And like I said, it's this, it's, it's this revolving cycle that we want to get kids to fall in love with the game so they can then, in turn, be part of football for life and it be a, a, a fantastic foundation for them. Um, I see with this pathway as well, I see the high-performance football school, schools from grade 9 to 12. Well, that's no different to the pathway back in the day, Westfield Sports High. It's just branded FFA. Westfield has always produced so many fantastic um, international athletes regardless of sport but you also got Hill Sports High School that um, has produced uh, different athletes as well so schools are fundamental um, regardless if they're a sports high school but that's where majority of the, the the players spend their time so like I said I think rather than have this all over the shop and it, it explains things and you know you're at SAP at, at, at eight years old um, going there three days a week and, and having to pay $2,000 to do their 40, 40 weeks a year. There's no um, balance within life and it puts pressure on mums and dads to, to want to be able to um, produce the next uh, Sam Kerr or, or Tim Cahill. Um, I think there needs to be a community pyramid and there needs to be a, an elite pyramid. And that elite pyramid doesn't start until you probably hit 13 or 14, okay? And there's a bridge from community that you cross over and you go over to elite. Okay, and then you can call yourself elite by getting the structures in place, getting the foundations, getting the tactics, like I said at the start, being able to instill a winning mentality, being able to play and be adaptable to different formations. But at the moment, this pathways is uh, it's 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 certainly all over the shop, and it needs to be re revisited. Um, the Matildas are on the same the same um, level as the as the junior national teams. So yeah. And then we need to obviously review NTC age groups, which are which are um, very difficult at the moment, given given the, the age groups aren't always consistent with the with the young Matildas. So when I talk about um, pathways, I think there's two things. I'm going to talk about elite now. I, I won't talk about grassroots and community just just for the moment. Once you cross over, and you go between let's say 14 to 17, 
and you start to learn the game and love the game and, and want to continue your learning from a tactical point of view, well, then that, that's when you get the opportunity to be able to represent your country. And that's when a Ray Dower can then look at you and say, okay, you've been identified. These are the players that, that uh, want to cross the bridge to elite. And then the next level, the Leah Blaney squad, who's the young Matildas. But then the biggest thing is, and at the moment, we've got our Matildas that are our core Matildas, and those Matildas that have debuted in the last two, three, four years that have got one cap, three caps, the youngsters like your Princess Sabinis, like your Amy Sayers, like your Amy Harrisons, they've got nowhere to go. So there's no program. So how can we get a program up until the age of 23 so it's a safety net? And I'll use an example. When I was at Canberra United and um, was coaching the initially when I walked in the door just there, there's no Canberra-based players. And the reason why there's no Canberra-based players or very few Canberra-based players is because the gap, the gap from NPL to, to W League and those players were just training in club, club land. So maybe with the funds, we'd, we'd love all, all the money. Maybe we need to create an under-23 national team. So those players continue to stay in the game, okay? And the, and, and the future Matildas program, can we bump that age group? And then that way, maybe we're debuting Matildas when they're mature enough and they're able to, to go to that next level and they've learnt the tools of the trade and, and, and we're finished with them. And then we get longevity by, by them playing um, for, for a long, long time. This current Matildas crop of, of players, um, this is the last World Cup. They were the oldest team at, at our World Cup thus far. So it shows that with the right core players who have been part of three, four, five World Cups, there is going to be longevity. So Heather, before we, uh, we move on uh, to some questions, um, you know, there's been a lot of talk over the last few weeks, maybe, maybe even a few months, about the role of the state member federations. What do you see as the role of the state member federations with respect to our elite player pathways? And where do you see that ultimate responsibility lie? Yeah, I think it's a great question. Um, and I'll, I'll go back to um, no, play, no paying, um, not paying if, if you're on the elite pathway or paying very little. Um, and so the people and the players of uh, communities that can't afford it, um, then they get an opportunity as well because in actual fact, uh, 65, over 65% of our Matildas that have played at um, that level are all from regional areas. So not everyone can afford it. I think the member federations have a, have a crucial role to play. And um, I think they need to throw out the agenda. They need to throw out, um, you know, what their thought is. And they need to get um, leadership from the hierarchy. And the hierarchy, it starts from the technical directors which obviously we don't have one at the moment, but there, there has to be a male technical director and a female technical director. And the technical directors in the member federations have to report to the national technical directors. So everybody's on the same, same page. There's accountability there. And then there's consistency, there's cohesion, there's culture. We all get it. That's what needs to happen. So from, from an elite point of view, um, it, it, it needs to be um, top down um, in terms of leadership and it needs to come from, from our technical directors. Hey, just a question on that. We have a question from Rupi. In regards to cost, what do you propose as the possible solution to bring the uh, fees down? Um, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I can't, 
given I'm not an administrator, um, I think that's where they do their magic. Obviously, um, paying to, to play um, is is a thing that we we obviously know is a is a massive barrier. Um, I, I don't know the answer to that, but we can think a little bit laterally. Um, we can think laterally by obviously trying to tap into to grants that we, that we can get. Um, obviously, we're utilising and, and it's it's in, been in the media is that we're uh, doubling up on on services and resources all around the country from a member feds point of view. I'm, I'm happy not to comment on that because I don't know the intricacies of it. Um, but I do know that we all need to be on the same page and that creates leadership. So I can't answer that, which I'm sorry. Um, I'd, I'd love to be able to give a, a great answer, but I, I don't have the solution for that. No problem. Just before we move on, just one more question um, if, from Michaela. If we're looking at uh, female talent development from a holistic point of view, do you think that the structures in place are the real issue behind the gap between genders? Um, no, no, it's not just the structures. I think it's the coaches. I think it's the coach education. I think it's the competitions. Um, I think it's, I think they're, they're the barriers. I think obviously um, the players, um, the early specialization, which I keep, I keep banging on about. Um, and, and most importantly, I, I think it's, it's, it's more about creating the culture that, that, that the player wants to come to, to their club and be able to aspire to, started under 13s and be able to uh, make Sydney FC or, or, or Adelaide United. Um, so no, I, I don't think it's just that, um, but they need role models as well. And I, I think that's really important. So there, there, is, a, there is a gap um, that needs to be filled. And that's one thing I'm sure uh, will be on the radar going forward. Sorry, if there's no more questions there, Aish, Heather, we might continue with the presentation. Uh, so coaches. Yeah, brilliant. Um, obviously, something I'm super passionate about, and uh, just been able to to have a look at the the bottom left photo. Um, I think, uh, and while I, I said it before, um, I'm going to focus on female coaches, okay? Because um, this is what I think is needed to to develop in the game. Um, I'm going to use the analogy of when I send my daughter or daughters to school. I don't care. I don't care if she gets a male or female teacher um, because there's no stigma attached to that. Um, it shouldn't be like that in football. And it wasn't like that for me growing up in football. Uh, we've got Connie Selby, I'm sure, on the line, who was my first institute coach and she was a female. I didn't think anything of it. So the, below the photo, um, which is a fantastic initiative from Football Australia, um, these uh, four ladies were part of the, the FFA FIFA mentor program. And you've got Mel, who's now the assistant coach in the Matildas. Lee is obviously um, the future Matildas coach and the young Matildas coach. Ray is part of the and head coach of the junior Matildas. And, and Tanya's over, over in probably the best league in the world, um, head coach there at Bristol. So these coaches, um, and in particular myself, we got to be part of a network to be able to um, feel confident to be able to uh, speak about the barriers and, and what it takes to be a coach and, and, and how hard it is to be a coach. Um, so that, that picture uh, captures a, a really good moment. Um, up in the top right-hand corner as well, I, um, I tried to Google um, young coaches coaching females and the photos, they didn't come up. And then I stumbled across this one at top right. And, and this is really close to my heart because this is a girl by the name of Genevieve. 
and I coached Genevieve in the, in the Shire um, years ago when I, when I was doing my, my personal coaching. And um, she was a young seven-year-old, I think it was, and I had her for years. She played for Sutherland Shire. But just to see her um, and a passion for the game, a love for the game, she obviously knew that she wasn't going to go on anywhere past, like I alluded to before, past W League or Matildas. And now she's giving back to the game and giving back to the young young uh, women and girls uh, in the Shire. So that may be really proud to stumble across that, that picture. So in terms of coaches, um, we're going to look at the statistics and... Um, 4.6 million women in Australia. So women make up, you know, more than 50% of the Australian population. There's over 15,000 women playing football and it continually increases um, from year to year, which is fantastic. And then we've got 7,000 women coaching in, in the system, but it's un unknown whether these women are actively coaching or where the women are um, in terms of advanced license coach coaches. We've got five pro diploma coaches at the moment. Those five are Ray Dower, Mel, Kat Smith, uh, Vicky Linton and Nicola Williams, who's currently over in Italy at the moment. Um, and then we've got probably about 10, 10 A-League coaches and then it goes maybe 20 or 25 B, B coaches and then the C coaches, it, it's about 40 or 50. So in terms of females being in the game and wanting to coach in the game, um, the increase in participation has certainly increased, but unfortunately, female coaches hasn't, hasn't increased. Now, I know what the men, male coaches are thinking. Why are we always crapping on about female coaches? Well, the simple fact is, is that the opportunity is unfortunately not there because what's happening is, is we get to a certain point and we're stigmatised. And it's very difficult for a female coach to break into different levels. Now, I know for um, a coach, and hopefully she doesn't mind me saying, but someone like a, a Mel Andrietta who has decided to go to the male side of coaching, um, it's fantastic. It should be normalised. It, should it shouldn't be anything different. And in fact, she's a school teacher as well. So I'm sure she, she'd see the barriers in the men's system to being a school teacher because there is no barriers. But to coaching, I think um, the solution to, to our female coaches and, and developing in our female coaches is, like I said, the, the mentor program. And um, I'm very proud to say that FCA and FFA have collaborated together. And in the near future, we are going to establish an, a, a mentor program, um, one similar to what FIFA has, has done. We've almost um, emulated the, the FIFA one because we know how successful it is. We know how tough it is. We know the barriers that, that women have to go through for, for coaches or for coaching and doing their badges. And um, in particular, and if I look at it, um, myself being a mum, I think it's, um, it's fair to say that um, a female coach is gonna contribute something vastly different to a male coach. And if I give an example, I had a conversation um, the last couple of weeks and I spoke to one of our high level male coaches and I, I asked him, I asked him whether he thought that a female could contribute to the male environment. And he had to think about it. And he said, I'd never thought about that, but tell me what they could contribute. Well, females can contribute something very different to, to, to males. And, and what they can contribute is thinking differently. Men and women obviously think differently. So when we see a play, a male's gonna go A and a female's gonna go, well, I see it differently. So we talk about the one percenters, 
And we talk about the one percenters in grassroots. We talk about the one percenters at club and how can my club be the best? How can my MPL club be better than that? Well, that is a one percenter. And that's why I really enjoy and have had so many fantastic male mentors, but the lack of resources and support for females, the feeling of a belonging, the feeling of being able to step out and go to that course. It's okay for me. I've got the runs on the board. I've played, I'm an ex-player. Um, and being able to be confident, um, it's, it's very, very different. Um, the other thing is, is that from a coaching perspective, it's the commitment side of things. It's being a mum, it's having children, it's um, being able to juggle, it's being able to have to do a course um, that's so regimented. I remember doing my B licence course and I had to pop out every couple of hours to breastfeed, breastfeed my, my, my little baby who was a couple of months old, but I had to get the course done. There, there was very little uh, flexibility, but in saying that, the, the course instructor, it was uh, Craig Vigley, was outstanding and, and adaptive, um, but it's tough. It, it's not easy. And um, maybe another solution could be that, um, you know, mums who juggle everything from life to cooking to to kids parties to doing homework and things like that just like dads do is maybe they 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 get together with a buddy and and from a grassroots point of view um to an mpl point of view that 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 we we get together and we put quotas um and i know quotas don't work but guess what in america the quotas work from a college perspective because it's it's a 50 50 spend and so until we normalise things, then we have to put things in and around that. The buddy system I thought of um, for mums is all mums love to have a buddy to be able to support them and, and, and bounce ideas off. So that could be another solution. But it is prevalent and we can continue to keep pretending it's not there, but it is there. It's called unconscious bias. So talking about unconscious bias, we're going to go into the coaching pathways, which is another riveting um, description of our coaching pathways. And whilst I understand that it's nice to put up tables, um, I had a conversation this week about um, female coaches having a different pathway to, to our male counterparts. And I, I think it makes sense. And I think it makes sense um, from all the reasons that I've just alluded to, um, given that it makes it tough um, delivering courses and, and going away every weekend, let's say for your C or B license. Um, it's just not possible. So how can we make them functional? How can we um, put a spin on them to get more females coaching, more mums coaching, more women in high positions in coaching and it not just to be the ceiling being a W League coach. And if you're not a W League coach, then the only thing you've got to do is to be a national, national coach. Our NPL coaches, majority of our NPL coaches are still male, still male NPL coaches. How can we draw in as many females as possible? So our, our pathways um, certainly need, need to be revamped. And I can say um, with great confidence, I know they're in review at the moment. I'm really excited to see what comes out the other end because it's something that certainly needs to, to be um, on the radar because without, without the coaches, you can't coach the quality players. And without the quality players, we don't create the depth. So it's this vicious, vicious cycle. Um, I'm going to use the example and, and I'll still uh, steal what James Johnson had said the other day is that um, Japan, when they won the World Cup in 2011, is they, they spent 10 years of recruiting quality coaches and putting them through licenses and investing. 
And they think that was the point of the difference, the quality of coaching for them to win the World Cup in 2011 is to be able to create great pathways for coaches just as, just as much as creating great pathways for, for uh, players as well. Um, coaching development. I've alluded to, obviously, the flexibility, um, the affordability. Um, I use the analogy quite a lot of, um, obviously, for coaches, and we saw the pictures of myself, Leah, Ray, um, Mel, uh, et cetera, et cetera, who um, were in full-time roles. Uh, but for NPL coaches that are getting paid a couple of thousand dollars to be head coaches, um, it's not affordable. The courses aren't affordable. It's um, thousands of dollars to get up to your A licence. Um, then to do your pro licence, obviously, is quite a large amount. So uh, we're losing coaches uh, from an affordability point of view. Role models, I spoke uh, before about having um, a coach like Connie Selby, who was a role model. So I always used to think about Connie um, when, I, when I'd coach, because I coached while I played as well at a grassroots level. I continue to do that because I love it. But other than Connie, um, I can't really hand on heart say from our sport point of view, there's not many females that have gone back into the game to then be high level coaches. Now we're starting and it's baby steps, I understand, but it's really important to have role models. Now I've been um, fortunate enough to have a, have a mentor here in Canberra, who's probably one of our best coaches in Australia. And I'm not going to say female coaches, our best coaches in Australia that's been so successful. And that's Carrie Graff who, has won so many championships at, at club level with the Canberra Capitals, but also coached in the Opals and also coached over in, in, in the American League for, for basketball. So she's been a, a fantastic um, advocate for female coaches, but also also a, a fantastic uh, mentor for me in, in, in times of need. Um, I've spoken about investment, obviously. I'm gonna pop down to, to gender stereotypes and I use the word unconscious bias um, before and it exists. Uh, whether you think it does or not. Um, even my husband still kills me uh, with his unconscious bias, um, being ex-French military. Um, but it's just about gently educating. And I don't think we need to go out there and, and, and um, you know, continue to bang on about, you know, being in, in the feminist mind. We, we need to just gently educate. And the more we can gently educate, I think the easier it'll be. Um, our courses, as I alluded to, uh, more uh, predominantly focused from a, from a masculine point of view. And it, 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 provo it, it encourages, um, obviously, or sorry, discourages females to step out and, and speak up. And, and women need something a little bit different um, to our women counterparts. And, and I thought, I, I, think, um, I think that's a major one. The other thing is from a media um, point of view is that, the scrutiny that females um, from a journalist point of view, obviously being in the media game as well, um, from a journalist point of view, from a coaching point of view, even players, um, we've seen the N uh, AFL, um, Taylor Harris being scrutinized. And it's very different um, for a female. And um, a couple of years ago, I spoke to someone that's high level in, in football. And, and I said, oh, one day I'd love to be able to coach um, a men's A-league team. It's a dream. And um, his reply to me was, you would have to be the best coach in the A-League to have a female coaching in the A-League. So that within itself, a comment like that within itself is a clear example is that, that we're miles away and we still need to continue to evolve as much as we can.
Heather, on that, um, there's, there's uh, other areas that we could probably address right away. Obviously, uh, becoming a, a top-level coach takes time, but um, would you like to see more female coach educators? Oh, absolutely. I, I think it's a no-brainer. Um, you know, you obviously feel comfortable, um, and a lot of, lot of women, or majority of women, feel comfortable um, being able to, to um, be instructed by, um, you know, what they know, and maybe it's a comfort zone thing. Um, and at times you'll need to get out of your comfort zone. But yeah, I, I think that's something that we need to look into. Um, so, same thing is about pathways. I think there needs to be a female pathway for coaching. There needs to be a female playing pathway. And in turn, that, that being, you need a, you need a, a TD for, for uh, women's football, uh, most definitely, because a TD for the whole of game, it, it's just not possible. They can't, um, we can't tap into um, all the areas that, that you need to. Right, so we might um, we we will take questions after the next section, section, Heather. But we might keep moving along. Sure. So competitions, it's an area very close to your heart. Yes, it certainly is. It is certainly um, something close to my heart. Something that um, obviously being in W League and being part of W League uh, for the last three years and and spending time in in the uh, women's NPL, it made me realise that. Um, we're not playing enough games. We're certainly not playing enough games. Um, and our competition structures are skewed. And for whatever reason that is, uh, we can uh, talk about it shortly. Um, but I think, I think they need to change. And, and that's from uh, our grassroots. I'll, I'll let you in on a conversation I had with one of the, the club presidents today. He asked me how he grades his under-10s because he's got seven teams of under-10s and how he grades them. And I wrote back, are there divisions? Because back in the day, there was divisions with me. And he said, yeah, there's divisions, but we call them different colours, but the kids know what divisions they are. Well, straight away, just there, his hands are tied. Because unfortunately, from a member federation point of view, or whoever makes the decisions, they've then created this vicious cycle of creating competitions instead of the kids enjoying it and playing with their mates like they do up until nines or tens, they're creating this hierarchy. So which then creates um, the kids that don't feel like they're good enough and then they turn their backs on the sport. So I think from a structural point of view, we need to tweak that. We need to tweak whether boys and girls can play together, whether we continue to play together up until a certain age, giving players the choice, being able to be a little bit more inventive um, from a competition's point of view, but most importantly, playing as many games as possible. I've touched on um, that I coached at Sydney University uh, for four years and it was delightful to be part of that club. It was a club that had never made finals before I walked through the door and they just needed something to push them along. And I remember having my first meeting and it was a meeting about in and around, we just need someone that has winning mentality that can push us along. We've, we've, we've got all the, all the structures in place. We've got a fantastic program. We just need that. And I saw the vision and I saw what they wanted to do with the, the program and I jumped on board straight away. So it was fantastic to be part of Sydney University. But then going into, into W League, it was different. It was a real shock. It was a shorter competition. Sydney Uni was about 25 games, I think it was. You could have a good pre-season before. You could build into the competition. If you lost a couple of games, it was okay. There wasn't anything um, wrong with losing a couple of games. You could then tweak your tactics. But then I started coaching at Canberra United 
and the season's 12 games. And the moment you lose a couple of games, in which I did, um, I'm not fearful of saying that, then if you want to change things, it takes a while to change. And then in turn, it makes it really difficult. But what I wanted to speak about is more about the gap between our NPL competition to our W League and the quality. And the couple of things for coaches, because I know there's going to be coaches at NPL level that are, that are online, that can actually do with, with the players at NPL level. And if you take anything away from this, you can do this because it's, it's quite an easy thing to do. The intensity of training and the professionalism of training is number one. So I know when I walk out on the pitch and I have observed many sessions, it's easy to create intensity within training. And that's one thing I know that we don't, did, didn't have or don't have from an NPL point of view. The players, the amount of players that have come from NPL to say, I've never trained this hard, Heather. I'm not speaking about Sydney Uni because we had a professional program and it was probably mirrored very similar to, to what a W League program was. But the NPL players that I'd get, I'd spend half the time, because we've only got a three or four week pre-season, I'd spend half the time trying to get the NPL players, which is 60% of NPL players from around the country that make up the W League, trying to get them up to speed. So it was important um, from a coach, coach perspective, as a W League coach, to try and help the, the NPL coaches and the amount of conversations I had with different NPL coaches to ask them to do extra extra um, conditioning sessions because this one's, this one's not up to uh, condition and, and I'm about to get her. And we're talking about players that have just come off the back of a full season. This is in September and, and, I, and I'd get the players in, 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 a, in, a, um, in an October if the league started um, late October. So from an intensity point of view, also from, from, a, from a point of view is professional standards. So standards like um, professional kit, being on time, working hard, um, being able to continually keep intensity up when different passing practice were happening, being able to um, be accountable for their actions, being able to drive different actions, being able to be in a leadership position. Okay, these are all the attributes that you look at when you're a, you're a W League coach to try and have a look at NPL players. And the other thing is, is did they play regular, regular football? As a, as a W League coach, we wouldn't look at positions. Okay, maybe, maybe at times you look at positions, but I would look through the positions and I'd look at, could this player play at NPL level and does she have something that can, can win me games or has she got that X factor? And that's one thing that I tried to I tried to do, especially given from a recruiting point of view, I found it really difficult to get players to Canberra. And a lot of my players come from the New South Wales Premier League. Now I know from a training point of view, and I'm gonna go on to this, this point um, shortly, is um, if you didn't have the numbers at training, could you maybe collaborate with, with a, a boys team? Or could you maybe bring a couple of boys in to lift, lift the standard? Um, especially if they're 15 or 16 year old boys to be able to lift the standard. Um, but from a W League point of view, this, this was crucial. Uh, the other thing that I found uh, was useful uh, for the NPL girls was being able to show them video and footage. And now at the moment, I know there's so many leagues um, around the country that have live streams, Queensland, ACT, New South Wales, Victoria, South Australia. So all, the, all these games are televised 
So just being able to sit with the player to talk about the consistency of their game or what they can improve, just having that personal connection for improvement is um, really, really important, especially going into that, that W League. And then that would help the quality of the W League. And as w, a W League coach, we're not chasing our tail three or four games in because we would, would only get our internationals a week or two before. So trying to um, build culture, trying to build cohesion, trying to gel together, um, it wouldn't be until two or three games into the season. So the differences there um, are, are very few and far between, but I know every coach that's, that's on, this, on this call um, or on this presentation can contribute um, that intensity of training and driving standards and the accountability of the players and the professionalism. Great, Heather, there's, um, there's some incredible questions coming into the chat. So everyone, uh, we're not far from the end. Keep those questions coming in. There's some good questions about intensity and how you drive some intensity at training. But for now, I think we'll move on to, a, on to the next topic because the Heather Garriock I know is a solutions-driven person. She is the kind of person that says, don't come to me with problems, come to me with solutions. Um, and she practices what she preaches. So Heather, you have uh, proposed a solution for the W League. Before we do that, you wanted to show this video to show that you always knew the solution. Before you start the video, Sarah, um, again, this is an interview that I, um, I wasn't too polished back in 2007, so apologies for that. There was a few different ums and ahs and whatever, but um, I, I stumbled across this, and this is 2007 that, that, that I've said this, and here we are now with general, I'm sitting with general manager of women's football, Sarah Walsh. Um, so play it along, Sarah. Didn't need to, to be looked at. We're, with all this publicity and positive feeling around the, the Matildas and the, and the girls' game in particular. What needs to be done, Heather? What, what, what do you think needs to be done? Well, I think definitely the FFA needs to look into um, trying to get us a National League, which is um, competitive games week in, week out, not just a competition that we all fly in and play four or five yeah. games in a week or two. It needs to be 20 rounds, just like the Men's A-League. Yep. That way we're, we're fighting for, for first and second and, and runners-up and different things like that. I think that's so important and, and we need to push that. Um, given that we've, we've done well and the media's, mm. we've caught the media's attention. So this actually fires me up, okay? I'm fired up about this um, because when I saw this, this is 2007, okay? We're in 2020 and we've still got a Mickey Mouse competition and it's a marketable competition and the players are getting paid minimum wage. It's fantastic. But the most important thing for our players' development is to get game time. And we can't just have 12 games and then they go off to their NPL clubs and play and train a couple of times a week. So I've come up with a solution. So this is Heather Garriock's solution. And obviously I'd love to speak about option one initially. And option one would be to take our competition, our W League competition to winter. And the pros to that is obviously we align. I'd love to see the men's A League go to the winter competition. Obviously, hopefully we could align with the men's competition which we could then have TV rights, um, which would be first class. In blue, you can see the FIFA windows. So maybe there's not many many players going to be playing as part of the W League because our Matildas are going to Europe, which is bloody fantastic to see. And so they should be going to Europe. So instead of focusing on the high end and the golden generation, the players that are already getting a lot of minutes and playing 12 months of the year and not getting a break and getting burnout and need, need rest, why don't we focus on the next generation? And sometimes we're going to take a couple of steps back before we can go forward. 
And what, I, what I've proposed, and like I said, I'd love to play three rounds, but I thought I, I wouldn't be greedy to start off with, is option one. Option one being that we can have a six to eight week pre-season at the start of the year and we can play a pre-season cup and let's say we play six or seven games and in pre-season cup and then we start round one at the start of April. There's a FIFA break just before that. And then we play, play our rounds and we play our rounds on the weekends. We don't have to try and fit into to all, the, all the different um, broadcasting thing. We play, play our games on the weekend. All the games are played on the weekend consistently. The men's are maybe played a Friday, Sunday. Maybe the women's are played a Thursday, Thursday uh, Saturday or something like that. And then we get to play as many rounds as we want up until the start of September. Within that, we need collaboration from the MPL clubs because I'm sure all the MPL clubs and the member federations are going, well, what do we do with our, our league? Well, the W League is obviously going to be watered down in terms of talent because um, you've got majority of the Matildas going to Europe. Not all of them, though. And then what we can, what we can do is then get our 60 to 70 players that are playing in the NPL to then bump up to the W League. And the standard isn't going to be quite as good, but it will be in five years' time or four years' time. We need a succession plan. So once we do that, we can then invite players, and I know some players have been over to Iceland. Iceland do it beautifully as well, is international players will want to come and play in our season and not just stop off and come for a holiday and, and play in the summer. So then we can create an FFA Cup. That's when we can get the, the MPL clubs involved. And those MPL clubs, I'm not going to put an age limit on it because there's some senior players that, that, that can't play um, or don't want to play at W League level. But that can be feeder clubs and there's collaborations with, with the, the W League clubs. They could be feeder clubs to our W League clubs, which then obviously there's a two-way street. There's collaboration and we can, there's, you know, obviously um, marketing and, and things like that. The grand finals at the end of September and you're obviously thinking, well, what are we going to do in the off months? We need to create hubs within Australia. And in those off-seasons, we need to give appropriate time for holidays for players. They'll then have national team duties, whether it be 17s, 20s, um, Matildas. And then we have an intensive training environment. So similar to your future Matildas program, but not the future Matildas program where players have to fly in and, and um, from all around the country. You have your own hub in your own state. And whether it be hubs initially where we go Queensland, Sydney, Melbourne, or we go... Uh, four or five different hubs. I don't know. I haven't. I haven't looked at that. But um, I think. I think that could be a great solution. We're playing maybe seven, eight months of the year, and then when we play in our hubs, we then play against boys, and we've got quality competition, or we we match up and, and we continue to play. So we might be getting forty or fifty games a year. We go to option, and and in terms of the preseason cup, the FFA Cup, and the W League you're playing almost 30 games within your structure as opposed to playing 12 to 14 games in the miniature structure. We go to option two, which is currently what we've got at the moment. Obviously, the transfer, win, uh, transfer I mean, the FIFA window is October. We start, I'll, I'll start backwards. The reason why I've ended W League, the, the W League grand final um, on the 30th of January is because that is the major transfer window. For any player that wants to go overseas, from an NPL player to a W League player, that transfer window is crucial, especially to go over to Europe, whether it be the Italian League, whether it be the, the Norway, that transfer window is key. So we do our grand final on the 30th. We then go into and try and play two rounds within 
a four month period. Is it ideal? No, it's not. Do we only get a three or four week pre-season? Yes, we do, similar to what we do. But can we play two full rounds? So in red, you can see in red, those two full rounds, there's double headers in red. So sometimes, so in those rounds twos, you play on a Thursday and then you play on a Sunday. Is that possible? Yeah, it is possible. It is possible to be able to do that, get, getting three, three days in between. I'm sure our national team coaches would um, vouch for, for that, is preparing for our World Cup qualifiers and, and our ASC tournaments. You get three days in between, between. So we could play two full rounds within this four-month period. But again, what do we do in the off-season? Do we go to the MPL structures like we're doing? Do we, do we continue to do what it is that we're doing? Or do we then continue to have hubs within that? So obviously, it's a solution. I wanted to come with a solution. It's not, the, it's not going to be 100% the right solution. It's just options. I'm sure plenty of people would have plenty of things to say. But in terms of my thoughts and consistency and going back to a winter league and playing more games, we have to be playing at least 10 months of the year. Okay, For these players, we need competitive competitions. Obviously, the MPL um, in different states, there's three or four teams that are quality. The other teams aren't quality. So we are getting the bulk of the games. But the key point to this is we need competitive competition at a high intensity. And watering down that competition to go into a winter season, I do understand there's pros and cons, but we have to start somewhere. And then we can get to see a pool of players that are quality, that are playing high, high intensity and are out of their comfort zone. And when they get to the, the AFC championships, in terms of national team, they understand what it takes to have to win at all costs. At, at, at those levels and develop and try and qualify. So that's, um, that's my little, little uh, solution for, for the W League. I'm sure there's many different solutions, but I thought I'd, uh, I'd do up a, a little calendar and um, I'm sure it's not the right solution in terms of 100%, but at least it's a solution. So, uh, Heather, we've, we've, uh, we try to keep these to 90 minutes. So we're uh, almost in a home straight. So how do we bridge the gap? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Sarah. Um, I'm just going to reiterate the points that I've spoken about and I'm going to reiterate the points of this. So basically, from a playing perspective, scouting, there needs to be employed scouts all around the country. There's quality players all around the country. Uh, Shadeen Evans is a, is a perfect example from Northern Territory. Um, there's players everywhere. So a, a player ID and scouting, we need consistency. We need consistency in, in, our, in our programs. We need players to fall in love with the game from a school's point of view to a, to a, a, a grassroots, grassroots point of view. We need the pathways in place. Um, we need consistent pathways. We need support and leadership. We need players from 14 to 23 to be part of the elite part of the program or pathways, not to be elite at eight years old for, for Christ's sake. Um, coaches, we need co coach education, both for men and women, making it be consistent. We need a, a mentor program to be able to um, give, especially to, to females um, in terms of all stakeholders. We need all stakeholders in the game from grassroots to member federations to, to national team level. I think that's really important. And from a competition's point of view, I've just alluded to it as something I'm super passionate about. We need, and there's going to be stats coming out, we need players to play competitive games. If I use a statistic, um, and I'll use two players, so Matildas that are consistently in the Matildas and have been for the last five, six, seven years, 
is Ellie Carpenter, who debuted in 2015, and Chloe Legazzo, who debuted around 2012-2013. They're the only two players that have debuted for our country in the last seven, eight years. We need more players being able to push our midfielders. We need them. We need. We need them to be out of their comfort zones, and we can do that by starting from the bottom up. We need a whole of football plan, and the whole of football plan needs to be collaborated from everybody. And the leadership starts from the top at FFA. I've got a question from Tanya on Facebook, and I know it's uh, it's a really interesting question. If I know that there's anyone who'll answer it honestly, it's you. She says, "I am interested in pursuing a formal coaching contract for female football." Currently, I work as a project manager in an engineering firm. As a coach, am I going to be able to get a similar income to other fields uh, as a football coach? Um, yeah, I am going to answer it honestly. Um, no, you're not. No, you're not. And that's one of the downfalls, and um, I failed to mention it, is that from an income point of view, you don't get the rewards. So you put in, obviously, the, the, the effort, and um, I'll use my A-League counterpart coaches if I was an A-league coach then I'd be able to support my husband being able to stay at home with his with the children and um, he can work um, in a in a semi semi okay job but also have to pick up the the rest of the household um, things given that it's so time consuming so um, it's still in its early days from a coaching female coaching point of view there's very few full-time jobs and if I use Mel again, as an example, Mel is not a full-time assistant Matilda's coach. As disappointing as it is for me to say that, she works as a school teacher and also um, works for, for Brisbane Lions, which she's taking, taking on a great role just there. So um, there needs to be more full-time jobs for coaches, not just female coaches, for coaches in our country. And um, I'd love to lie to you and say, yep, take it on because football is the best and be passionate about it. It's not going to give you the same income, unfortunately. Awesome. So, Heather, um, we've got some questions just regarding uh, some of our best players in the country. We've got a lot of – we've seen a pattern with many Matildas going overseas. Uh, what impact will a lot of our best players, top players going overseas have on our W League? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question. Um, it's going to have an impact on it. it. It is going to have an impact. But what it's going to do, it's, it's going to make – the other Matildas that are on the cusp but that can't break into the Matildas, it's going to have to make them step up. And yes, the, the Matildas are going over to Europe, but just remember those core group of Matildas, and there's about 10 or 11 of, of them, in five or six years' time, we don't have those Matildas. They're retired. So this is why we need to act now. And sometimes, even in business, you need to take a couple of steps back before you can go forwards. And we, are, we will take a hit from, a, from a, a quality point of view, but we can bump that up with some international players. No, they're not going to be as quality as a, as a, um, a Lynn Williams that's coming over here for a, for a quick cash grab and, and, and then go home again, um, or, or a Jess, Jess Fishlock or someone like a, a Simone Charlie. But what we will get is we'll get players that are dedicated to our league from pre-season right to the end of the season. Awesome. And um, Heather, what advice would you give uh, coaches in terms of um, incorporating intensity into their sessions to get the best out of their players? Yeah, this is, this is a question I get asked all the time. And it's, um, you need to get the players to start to drive it. It's, um, there's nothing worse than hearing a coach on the sidelines screaming and shouting um, intensity. 
is it's been able to frame um, what you're trying to do is obviously from an intense point of view and you don't have to rush through your drills but it's about trying to receive the ball and also working hard in those small moments uh, a thing that i that i started to use the last um you know a year or so is players like to know what's going on in terms of the session so if you um told the players the different sets let's say the, the passing practice is for um, three, three, four minutes or um, the, the possession game is for, you've got two, two six-minute uh, possession games, they'll work hard for, and then, then they know they've got a rest. If they don't know that they don't have a rest, then you can't continue to ask and demand for intensity. Um, and also you can put conditions on the game to then, obviously, sometimes it's, it's, um, it's not functional to the game, but to raise the intensity and, and, and put pressure on because the players... Um, when they play against opponents, there's pressure on you all the time. So decision-making plays a key, key, key role in this. You've got to do everything under pressure and prepare in training how, how they want to play. Um, that's, a, that's a big thing. Awesome. And Heather, we've got a question from Ron. Ron had a great question regarding coach mentoring. Ron, could you please take your microphone off mute to ask your question, please? Okay. <clears throat> um, a couple of years ago, Heather, I was asked by Sarah uh, along with a few other people, if I would agree to be a mentor. Um, and I said, yeah, no problem. Um, I've got plenty of time on my hands and a reasonable amount of experience to share with people. I was given a mentee in the ACT and I made myself available almost 24-7. Now, I knew that um, the young lady had a, a lot of work on her plate, but my question is this, um, are, are older males the right people? Uh, do younger females see older males as the right people to be mentors? Because I shared all of my resources that I did with my mentee, I shared with all of the other co female coaches who were as part of this program. And Nicola Williams was the only one whoever engaged me um, and asked me a question about something. Um, and I was a little bit gobsmacked and disappointed at, at the reaction of the female coaches. Now, maybe I was the wrong person uh, in their eyes. Maybe there was too much of an age gap. I don't know. Um, but we talk a lot about mentor programs. Now, they've been put in place. So are you? would you suggest then that we only use female coaches as mentors uh, because um, I, I made myself readily available and nobody really came to me for any help. Yeah. Oh, um, Ron, thanks for, thanks for being, being uh, vulnerable and, and asking a question like this um, because I'm going to be brutally honest. Uh, you wouldn't want it any, any other way. No, I, I agree. I agree about females being somewhat um, intimidated by your knowledge and, and maybe maybe they didn't understand when I sit, sit with you at times uh, Ronnie that your knowledge I'm, I'm a little bit um, shy because I, I don't know as much as you but what I will say and FCA has done a fantastic job to put on so many so many of these presentations and the personal development by so many coaches is unbelievable but is there many females watching these personal development presentations the answer is no so I think the reason why is because 
at the end of it, there's not a carrot dangling. Like as a player, there's an Olympic Games or a World Cup. From a female point of view, I wouldn't say being a W League coach is uh, glorious. I wouldn't say, I would say being a Matildas coach would be amazing and that'd be, that'd be a dream come true. But there's very little jobs. So investing so much time, so much effort into something where there's, there's no carrot at the end of it makes it very difficult. So it's this vicious, vicious cycle. Um, Ron, I think as well, um, females, females like to be mentored um, by both males and females, um, but it depends on the temperament of the, of the person. Now, if we had a female version of you, I'm sure they'd pick the female version of you, okay? Um, but it's, it's, it's hard to explain on, um, even, even I, I feel at times um, like I need to have more knowledge or know more things, um, even though I'm obsessed with football and read and learn all the time. Um, I couldn't imagine what somebody else that didn't have the playing experience, how they'd feel. So, um, yeah, touchy subject, but thank, thanks for... Um, giving your time to want to be a mentor. I'm sure you're, you're a mentor to everybody, especially in this country. Thanks, Eric. As we have a, a fair few awesome women coaches within this uh, uh, forum currently, what advice would you give uh, to the female coaches out there um, and what can current uh, co women coaches do to help progress within the system? Yeah, I think it's a great question, Aish. Um, it, it's tough at the moment. And if I be honest, it reminds me of 15 years ago or, or 20 years ago when I, when I debuted as, as a player. Um, we've got a lot of work to do. And the lot of work starts from the top. And as female coaches, you just need to be patient. And I'm sure that word gets thrown around all the time. But it's about uh, having collaborative groups, um, having groups like FCA that continue to put on personal development programs, um, obviously PD presentations like this, but being able to have support networks and take the chance. Like I said, there's so many, so many females that are brilliant at what they do. They just don't, they just don't take the step, step, step out or they don't, they don't um, take the chance because they feel like they might not know how to teach a child, how to, how to, how to kick the ball or teach a child how to, how to dribble or, or whatever it is. So I think it's about taking that step and it's like that in life as well if you risk nothing you gain nothing so we need to keep as many females involved as possible and um yeah because we we are it's it is important for for our younger kids great thank you so much heather look thanks so much everyone uh for being with us tonight we have had some technical issues a little bit of glitchiness uh, hopefully we were able to fix that uh at about uh, three quarter time but Heather, you were uh, you were fantastic. It is always hard to uh, deliver a presentation when things are going a little bit wrong, but uh, as the professional that you are, you just kept going and you've given us a lot of food for thought. So thank you very much for your time tonight. Thanks for that, Sarah. And no, I really appreciate the opportunity to be able to present and um, hopefully I've, I've given a little bit of education, but also um, help, helped a few solutions out.